it was initially sold under the title Bad Taste, but I guess that ended up being mixed because it was, it was like too negative. But we went through like literally like a hundred other titles. And so, yeah, this, this was, this was one that just, that like felt fresh and it, you know, it was, we, we looked it up in Urban Dictionary and it like literally said food whore, a person who will do anything for food. And we're like, done. Welcome back to The Plot, a show about writing and writers. I'm your host, Sean Douglas. I'm an arts journalist. And for this episode, I'm excited to be joined by author and cook Jessica Tom for a conversation on food fiction. Tom is the author of the novel Food Whore, a novel of dining and deceit, set in the cutthroat restaurant world of New York City. She has also been a recurring presence on Food Network, including winning Food Network star in 2018. Tom's website, jessicatom.com, is a wealth of both recipes and writing advice. So in the spirit of cooking, I'm going to change up my interview format a bit and prepare one of her dishes in the process. With me again is my friend and co-host, Lauren McCrimmon, and we will be making Tom's coconut peach resin pudding with mango. If you'd like to try it yourself, we've also linked to the recipe in the description for this episode. I will note that since the show was recorded in my kitchen and not in my usual recording space, it might sound slightly different from what listeners are used to. We got the louder things like blending out of the way first, but you will hear some ambient sounds of the pudding making process as we discuss the intersection of both writing and food culture. How did Tom navigate the long road to publishing her first novel? How has winning Food Network star shaped her career as both a chef and an author? And what exactly is a food whore? We'll dig into these questions and a terrific summer dessert in this special food-themed episode of The Plot. So, let's get started. Well, hi Jess, thanks for being on The Plot today. Hi guys, thanks for having me. We are in the process of making your mango peach resin coconut <laughs> pudding, uh-huh. um, which is a recipe off of your blog, um, which yeah. we, we will include the instructions for in the description of this episode, so any listeners can make it themselves. This is the first time I've done an interview, an interactive literary slash cooking interview. So um, I, I, I like this format a lot. <laughs> Something new for me. Great. Yeah, that goes right into one of my questions that we can start with is just how does being a chef influence you as a writer? And then inversely, how does being a writer influence your work as a chef? You know, I think the two are very much similar. You know, I'm the type of person that likes to consume a lot of, like, you know, different dishes, different media, different experiences, and if I'm really into it, I think to myself, well, how can I do that myself? And so when I was growing up, I was very much a reader, always had my nose in books, and I thought, you know, I like reading. What if I learned how to to write? I'm really interested in, in the craft. And the same thing with restaurants, too. You know, um, I love eating out, but I equally love learning about those ingredients and techniques and then tinkering myself in the kitchen. So for me, um, writing and cooking are very much the same in that they're ways to express yourself, 
to build something from scratch uh, with like no barrier to entry, basically. You know, you could do it wherever you are, create something new that pleases yourself, pleases other people, um, or pleases no one. It's just something just like a fun exercise for you. Um, and then, you know, writing and cooking are also different windows into different people's worlds and cultures. So whether you're eating at, you're, you're experiencing a new cuisine or you're write, you're reading like a memoir from someone, you know, halfway around the world, it's a way for you to deeply know someone else's experiences. Um, so that's why I was kind of attracted to both. And, you know, honestly, I don't, I don't really like, I, I know they seem kind of different on paper, but to me, they all kind of melt together. They both kind of melt together in that it's craft, it's expression, it's, uh, experiencing other people and cultures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I like the way that you've emphasized how they're both personal expressions in a way. Mm-hmm. I feel like cooking is an art form. And it can be overlooked as, as counting in the same categories as other kind of arts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a part art and part craft. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they're, yeah. both cooking and writing are functional arts. And so with cooking, like, you know, you can be as creative as, as you want, but it has to be edible. And same with writing, you know, you can go pages and pages um, rhapsodizing about a flower, but that's not a story, mm-hmm. you know? It needs to hold water as um, as a narrative. And so I'm attracted to both, sort of the artistic component and then also sort of like the craft, very functional component too, both of them. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about your book, Food Horror. Yeah. Um, this is a fun book. I'm about halfway through it, and I haven't oh. read any, like food fiction before so i'm really enjoying all like the detailed descriptions of the meals so tell us about just the journey that this book took to publication i know from reading your blog it sounds like it went through a lot of different forms before becoming what it is now yeah it did so you know i came upon this idea because you know i knew that if I'm going to write a full-length novel, I need to be obsessed with the subject. I can't get bored with it because um, I could be potentially working on this for, you know, three years, five years, ten years, however long it takes for it to get published. And so the one thing that I knew is that if, um, if there was a topic that I could think about day in, day out, and never tire of, it's food. And so I decided that I wanted to set my book in the food world. And at the time, I was, um, I just graduated college, I had moved to New York City, I was experiencing all these new restaurants, and sort of, like, the, the culture of, like, going out in New York City and getting these reservations and getting seen at this place and, like, what's hot, what's not. And so um, I was very taken by that, and I thought that that was really a right ground for, for a book. And so um, I started writing it uh, while I had another job. And so, um, you know, I was working nights and weekends. During the week, I would write uh, 500 words every day, which isn't, which isn't a lot, but it's enough. You know, you, you, you pile on 500 plus 500 plus 500, you, get, you eventually get a book. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, even when I was working really late nights, like getting home at like 9.30, I would still write my 500 words. 
And, um, and yeah, and so I finished the manuscript and, you know, when you're a debut writer, in order to get an agent, you need to basically write the whole book on spec. You need to complete the entire work. So, um, I did that and I got an agent and the way it was originally written was that the main character was in college and this was like before, um, like twilight came out. This was like the, this was before the age of this, you know, book category that's now called new adult, um, which is like older than YA, but younger than adult fiction. And so that book niche didn't exist. And so a character uh, that was in college, that was kind of hard to place. And so, you know, publishing can be very, um, very strict in that way because they will literally think to themselves, where does this go in the bookstore? Even if, even if the, the story is good and the writing is good, um, they will ask that question. And that will be, um, you know, that plays a factor in whether or not they want to give you an offer. So, so basically, long story short, I originally wrote it, and then it had to go one way or the other. So then we pitched it as an, a YA novel, and then a young adult novel, and then I had to rewrite it many, many times. Uh, my first agent left the agency um, and start, and and became an author herself. So I was without representation, and then um, something happened in the actual New York City restaurant world where a very famous restaurant um, was downgraded from four stars to three stars. And something similar happened in my book. And one of the agents that I had initially queried and who had passed reached out to me. And this was when I was like really down. I was like, oh, like I like this book isn't going anywhere. I wasted all this time. I'm just, I'm just, I just need to throw this in the garbage and move on. That's when this other agent reached out to me and said, hey, I'm still thinking about your book, like after this thing in the news about, you know, this restaurant being downgraded, is this manuscript in need of representation? And I was like, yeah, it is. Um, You were like, heck yeah, it is. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the timing was perfect. And so, and at that time, new adult as a category was... um, was blossoming and so people were taking special notice of books like mine um in that age category so uh you know fast forward even more i didn't end up signing with that agent for various reasons but i signed with another agent we got the manuscript to a good place where we thought the market was ready for it and then we sold it we sold it to harper collins but it took about six years from the time of starting to write the book to selling the book. Well, I applaud your persistence, and I'm glad it all <laughs> finally came together for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it worked out, and, you know, looking back, I was like, uh, you know, it, it, it seems like a nice story, but in the moment, it didn't feel so nice. Mm-hmm. But it was good, because it prepared me for um, publishing is, is, is a tough business, and so I had to learn one way or another. Mm-hmm. Now, we have some mango here cut. Mm-hmm. I think what we're learning is that Lauren is much better at cutting mango than I am. Um, oh, it's, it's the worst thing to cut. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> do you have any mango cutting tips? Um, what Do you have, like, one of those, like, big Haitian mangoes? 
Or do you have one of those, like, skinny, uh, like, uh, champagne mangoes? I think they're uh, the first one. Yeah, probably <laughs> yeah, Haitian mangoes. Yeah. Did you, um, how did you, how did you peel it? Like, I, with a peeler or with an, a paring knife? I used a paring knife. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I mean, okay. so where are you having trouble? Oh, the whole part after peeling it. <laughs> no, it, it, yeah, I think so it just, looks fine. It's just, I will, I will be peeling mine by knife afterwards, and I just feel like she probably did a better job of peeling it in advance. <laughs> <laughs> well, they are very slippery. No, no, it looks fine. Yeah, it's just certainly not restaurant quality. <laughs> I'll just put it that way. <laughs> this is okay. rustic mango. Your mouth. Yeah. Uh, so do you want to um, give a summary for anyone who's not familiar with food horror, what the story's about? Sure. So food horror is a story of... Um, a young woman named Tia Monroe who secretly writes the New York Times restaurant review because the real critic has lost a sense of taste. And so, you know, on the one hand, she's leading the regular life of a 23-year-old who just moved into New York City with, like, a roommate and a boyfriend and, like, going to grad school. And then on the other hand, she's going to these four-star restaurants, has an expensive hamburger footman, is dining incognito, and she's leading this double life, and, you know, eventually all of the lies start piling up, and then she has to come to terms with, um, you know, what, what she will really do to get the life she wants um, as she's sort of sacrificing her integrity for this, for the job she thought was so, so glamorous, that of the New York Times restaurant critic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm right. I'm hitting the middle right now where it seems like everything is finally starting to pile up. And I'm curious how she's going to deal with it. Because on one hand, it's like, oh, I hope she keeps doing this because it's interesting. But on the other hand, she's making such terrible academic choices. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, I don't know what what life I want for her yet, but I'm curious to see how it's going to turn out. Yeah, it's a tough situation mm-hmm. for Tia, you know? I wouldn't want to be in her situation. Mm-hmm. And now you've also, um, in the past year, won Food Network Star. I uh, did, and yeah. That, and that was a fun season to watch. I've been following for the past few <laughs> years. I was a little disappointed they didn't have one this year. Um, but how did that impact your life as both a chef or as a writer? Food Network Star was definitely, you know, it's an, it's a, it's like... It, it changed my life in that it introduced a new avenue um, of my career that that wasn't there before. Um, so I am pretty new to food television, and I went on Food Network Star because I thought I thought I could do it. I thought I had some seed of talent. And, um, you know, since then, I have been trying to cultivate that talent. And, you know, when before I was sort of like a marketer slash writer slash home cook, now I, I can add this other slash as like a, um, you know, a TV presenter and a sort of, you know, I, I don't like the term celebrity chef, but, you know, a like a performative chef. And so you can call um, yourself a celebrity chef. I mean, <laughs> you know, in, the, in the very, in the in the very wide spectrum of celebrity chef, I know I'm on there somewhere. But um, but yeah, so you know, I think it's added definitely attracted more people to the work that I do, to my writing, and to like any other exploits I'm doing, and it 
you know, gives me another way to share what I'm making, whether that's writing or it's food or it's, um, you know, exposing people to a different sort of cuisine. I mean, that's something that I'm pretty passionate about is demystifying international ingredients and um, making them accessible for the home cook. You know, just like you guys, like I'm pretty sure you probably haven't cooked with peach resin before. No. Um, but it's pretty easy and it's, uh, you know, pretty tasty. And I hope that, you know, doing like making something that seemed pretty foreign after you try it, you realize that, um, you know, it's totally within your reach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I have this big heaping bowl of it now because of just how much it expands when you make I it. Know, right? I'm thinking of all these different <laughs> things that I want to do with it now. Yeah. 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 It's mm-hmm. very fun. Mm-hmm. So, should we put some mango in the pudding now? Yeah, we've had our pudding prepared. Um, we did all the blending pre-interview because we didn't have that interruption in here. Uh-huh, cool. So it smells amazing. Yay. So you already did, like, the coconut sugar and yeah. everything? So the, cool. Yeah, cool. so we have all of that done and are blending. So it was just the process of actually cutting up the mangoes, which we've learned is harder than it should be. <laughs> it might just be the number of mangoes we tried to fit on this little tray. <laughs> Probably. Mm-hmm. Well, I get to see a picture of what you did. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not going to look pretty at all. No, no I've been documenting it, so that will all be included for okay, people to cool. watch the process. Well, it all, it all, you know, it all goes in your stomach anyway, so yeah. it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's working. It's just, it's not the prettiest presentation, but it seems like it's going together. <laughs> Say neither of us are competing on Food Network Star anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, in addition to food horror, do you have other favorite food novels or food fiction that inspires you? Um, let's see. I... Or maybe even beyond novels, too. Are there other, is there other kind of storytelling with food that you enjoy? So, I'm not sure if there's a lot of food fiction, necessarily. Um, and th- that was kind of one of the reasons why I wanted to write Food Horror, is because I wanted to write the book that I wanted to read. And I didn't necessarily see it represented on the bookshelves. And so, um, in terms of food fiction, you know, I do love food stories generally so like you know the thing that the, the story that comes to mind is Tampopo do you know that it's like a Japanese they call it they call it a ramen western so it's kind of like a hmm. spoofy Japanese like cowboy western but it has to do with ramen and there are all these like little vignettes of various little food stories like so there's like a mobster who is like who is like has this um very strange food experience with his girlfriend and there's like there is this band of homeless guys who are like really snobby about their wine that they take out of the dumpster so i mean i have loved that movie since i was a kid and um it really sort of it was a good um template for me in terms of, like, making food entertaining 
outside of the realm of just it being delicious. So, you know, kind of what attracted me to, to food fiction um, is that food plays a lot of different roles. You know, it could, you can work it in various registers. So, you know, food doesn't just have to be delicious. It could be, um, you know, <laughs> are you guys blending? That's no, we are, we are zesting a lime. <laughs> We're zesting a lime? Wow, that's the loudest zesting I've ever heard. I'm um, so sorry, I was trying to do it quietly. <laughs> no, no, you're fine. Are you using, really... like, an electric zester? <laughs> <laughs> I really did not mean to interrupt your story there. Please continue, I will okay. zest away from you. Okay. Um, I figure that's part of the fun uh, of cooking during the podcast, is you get this ambient yeah. experience. <laughs> attractive to me because you can think of food as a type of language unto itself. I mean, certain dishes have certain meaning and, um, you know, you could use food as, you know, a symbol, not just of like fun and togetherness and deliciousness, but also like of sadness or of envy or a symbol of power, or a symbol of strife. So anyway, so Tampopo kind of showed me that food could in so many different registers, you know, could be funny, could be sad, could be satirical, and all this. Um, I read a lot of other books when I was researching food horror, so like all of like Ruth Reichel's memoirs, um, you know, obviously like Kitchen Confidential. Um, there's a book by Michael Rollman um, that was about. A restaurant that was that had been downgraded. They had been downgraded in stars, and it was about the one year to get them back up. So um, I was really inspired by a lot of non-fictional accounts of the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels like food is so popular now, and there's so many kinds of food media and food storytelling, but it's just still sort of emerging as something for fiction. I mean, you know, there have always been, there are these books, they're called um, Cozy Mysteries, and, like, it's, like, someone was, like, murdered in, like, a cupcake shop or something, mm-hmm. and they're, like, very, um, they, they have, like, a very set structure, so, you know, I, I don't want to say, like, I invented food fiction or something, like, it's definitely been around, mm-hmm. um, but, yeah, I mean, there's still there's still um, room to grow, definitely. And, um, yeah, I mean, the food landscape is um, as broad and as exciting as it's ever been um, in terms of the types of stories that can be told on different platforms, um, showcasing different people and voices. And so, yeah, I mean, the sky's the limit, really, for, for anyone who's trying to tell food stories, fictional or otherwise. Now, it looks like we're about ready with the zest. Okay. <laughs> that looks good. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for zesting that. Of course. <laughs> so we'll put on some of the finishing touches here, and then we have some sesame seeds. Mmm. Um, so you can sesame that to your liking. Um... And then what is a food horror? 
for people who are are going to be new to that term. Yeah. Uh, so, so it doesn't um, sound like we're just like insulting you or something. <laughs> so um, the book defines it as a person who will do anything for food. And so, you know, that ties into the book because, you know, Tia Monroe is like a lot of people. She comes to New York City with a dream and she wants to go, go for it full force. Um, but when this opportunity is presented to her, she does have to, you know, compromise certain parts of her integrity and, and compromise certain relationships. And so, you know, the question is, what will she do for food, for this food job, um, for the life that she, she wanted in food? So that's, that's, that's how it came about. And also because my, uh, my agent and my editor were like, Jeff, you know, you, uh, this is your debut novel and it's so hard to break out these days. Like, let's have a really splashy title, uh, that'll like really, that'll really attract eyeballs. So I defer to them on that one. So Food Heart is absolutely a really catchy title. If I was in a bookstore, that would be one of the first things I'd be drawn towards. Cool. Thank you. I'm glad it worked then. My agent and editor were right. <laughs> Is there another title you were leaning towards when you were first starting it out? It was initially sold under the title Bad Taste, but I guess that ended up being mixed because it was, it was like too negative. But we went through like literally like a hundred other titles. And so, yeah, this, this, was, this was one that just that like felt fresh. And it, you know, it was we we looked it up in Urban Dictionary, and it like literally said food whore, a person who will do anything for food, and we're like done. You know, Urban Dictionary like did have to work for us. So you know it's official. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> so are you a food whore, or are we all food whores in our own way? Uh, <laughs> um. You know, I guess we all we all we all are. Except, I mean, I mean, there's there's a small percentage of people who don't care about food, but you know, I don't, I don't know about them. Yeah, I mean, there were so many ways to like be a food fanatic these days. Like, you don't have you can go to fancy restaurants, you can go to food trucks, you can like experiment with molecular gastronomy, you can like travel to all these places and like do a super intense itinerary. Um, there are so many ways to be a food whore, and I think, like, we're living in an age that's, like, so saturated with so much food porn, um, which is, you know, which is a good thing, I think. And, yeah, I mean, it seems like there, you know, people just can't get enough of, like, food content. That's why Netflix keeps on pumping out these, these food documentaries. Yeah. They do have a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Should we taste? I think so. Yeah. So I'm really excited to try this. Like it said, it smells amazing. Yeah. With the coconut oh, and the awesome. lime and the bit of mango. Like, yeah. This is... Oh, it smells so good. Mmm. Oh, that's... I could happily eat that all day. Yeah, that really is good. Yay! Cool. What do you guys think of the peach resin? I know it, it can be like an unfamiliar texture for some people. I like it. I feel like it's adding a really interesting body to it. Yeah. Like it's sort of this like coconut porridge almost. Yeah, like yeah, in, yeah. In, in yeah. like the best way. Yeah, I wasn't sure yeah, about it when I originally saw it, but definitely mm -hmm. added to here. It's it's really adding a lot in here. Mm -hmm. Cool. And I like that yeah. it's not too sweet. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think, like, um, I wanted to let the, um, if it's too, I wanted to feel like, like a light summer dessert. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, peach resin has a lot of nutritional properties. And mm-hmm. so I want to, like, totally negate that with, like, making it into, sort of like, a really over-the-top sweet dessert. Mm-hmm. Our skin and our bones are going to be so healthy after eating yes, this dessert. Yeah, totally. Yeah, you're going to be, like, doing, like, splits and back bends after this. You're going to be so limber. This is a pre-yoga meal. Mm-hmm. Pre and post. Mm-hmm. So you've been mentioning a lot about uh, different types of cuisines. What cuisines are you enjoying these days? Hmm. Um, you know, since it's hot, um... I am looking at, like, a lot of, um, you know, sort of, like, very, very simple, like, green markety things, mm-hmm. you know, like, salads and grilling vegetables with a simple sauce. I also, oh, this is, you know, this is something different. I went to um, my friend's house, and she is Russian, and she had this, her housewarming party catered by a Central Asian restaurant. And I really love the food. And then just this past weekend, I went to, like, I, like, sought out this um, Uzbekistani restaurant so I could have more of these dishes, which are, which are um, kind of, I mean, it's hard. It's, 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 it's kind of, like, Russian, but then there's also kind of, like, an interesting Chinese influence because, um you know, in, like, Kazakhstan and, like, Uzbekistan, there is, like, it's, there, those are the, those are the countries in between Russia, um, I mean, those, those, like, these, these countries are adjacent to, to China, and so you do get some, some filtering, of some, like, some blending of ideas, and so, you know, they have these, um, Monty, and they are these dumplings, and they're served in a steamer, and they look like Chinese soup dumplings, but um, they can, they're filled with, like, lamb and onions or pumpkin, something that, that is, like, kind of Chinese, but not really. Um, so, yeah, I've been, I've been really intrigued by, by um, Central Asian cuisine, and I've been... Um, you know, researching that and getting cookbooks and sort of delving into that a bit more. Mm-hmm. That sounds fascinating. I would have not known what to associate with Uzbekistani food. Yeah, yeah. And then also, and then there's like um, half a million Koreans that live in Kazakhstan, maybe. And so there's like a kimchi, like sauerkraut mashup <laughs> that they naturally do there. Um which is so cool because, like, you know, when, when we go out and, like, into, like, any city and you have some fusion restaurant, it's just, you know, I mean, these people are doing fusion and that's that's awesome, like, what they're doing. But this is sort of, like, organic fusion. They're not trying to be creative. It's just, like, oh, we have, like, they're Korean people and they're mixing with, like, Russian influence and the Russian people really love their fermented cabbage, which is sauerkraut. Korean people also love their fermented cabbage, which is kimchi, and it kind of blends together and does its own thing. Yeah, that sounds like a really amazing dish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 it's cool. Yeah, Lauren lived in Korea for quite a while, so oh, cool. I imagine you've had 
quite your share of kimchi. I, I have. I lived there for about six years. I don't think I've ever had kimchi mixed with Uzbekistanian sauerkraut, though, so <laughs> I might need to go ahead and seek that out at some point in time. Yeah. Well, thanks for being on the show today. We're going to finish off our pudding here, but are there any final words yeah. that you have for our listeners or anything else you want to plug or promote before we go? Um, I would say, you know, if um, people want to see what I'm up to next, they can follow me on social media. Um, so my Instagram is Jessica underscore Tom, and my website is JessicaTom.com. Awesome. And then Food Horror is available wherever books are. <laughs> That's right. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Thanks so much, Jess. All right. Thanks, guys. I'm glad you enjoyed the dish. Thanks for making it. Yeah, you're very welcome. Happy cooking and happy writing. <laughs> Thanks, you too. That was author, cook, and Food Network star Jessica Tom on her novel Food Whore, a novel of dining and deceit. For more of Tom's recipes and guides to both cooking and writing, you can find her online at jessicatom.com and on Twitter and Instagram at jessica underscore Tom. Food Whore is available wherever books are sold. The plot is a production for me, Sean Douglas. Lauren McCrimmon was my co-host and an associate producer on this episode, and our credits theme music is by Tan Chong Yu. If you liked this show, please subscribe on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at underscore Sean Douglas underscore, and this show at The Plot Podcast. Thank you again to Jessica Tom. That's our show, and thank you for listening. <laughs>